Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled The Work of Forgiveness, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for February 20th, 2022, the seventh Sunday after the Epiphany. Back in December, the New York Times ran an essay with a ruefully funny title, Rudeness is on the Rise. You got a problem with that? In it, Jennifer Finney Boylan laments the rising tide of rage and meanness in our COVID-weary culture. How, she asks, do we respond to a world under stress, a culture in which the guardrails of so-called civility are gone? The evidence of that stress is everywhere. In airports and then in the skies, you can find airline passengers angry about wearing masks, angry about inspection of firearms and their carry-ons, seemingly angry about, well, everything. Close to home, things aren't much better, and it comes from both sides of our ideologically divided society. Whether our tempers flare on an airplane, a highway during rush hour, a long queue at a restaurant, or a hospital waiting room, we seem to have lost our capacity for gracious communal living. We bristle at new COVID restrictions. We assume the folks we don't even know are out to get us. We cancel our nemesis, both real and imagined. So, of course, our lectionary readings this week will cause us some necessary discomfort. Honestly, when I looked them up a few days ago, I flinched. Why? Because the readings are about forgiveness. They are about the work of forgiveness, and the challenges they pose to our shove or be shoved culture are daunting. In our Old Testament reading, Joseph forgives his older brothers for sending him into a lifetime of hardship. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. The psalmist exhorts his readers to refrain from anger and forsake wrath because fretting over evil only leads to more evil. In his first epistle to the Corinthians, Paul writes about seeds that must die before new life can emerge. Dare I suggest that these seeds might include our resentments, our grudges, our wounds, our prejudices. Paul reminds us that we cannot know ahead of time what God will do with the bare and perishable seeds we sow into the ground. All we can do is consent to die to everything that hinders new life and trust that God will raise our dishonor and weakness into glory and power. And finally, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus continues his sermon on the plain with teachings so countercultural we hardly know what to do with them, even now, 2,000 years after he spoke them. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. And again, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. These readings don't leave us much wiggle room, do they? No matter what we think of it, our call as Christians is to walk in love, to practice mercy, to refuse revenge, recrimination, and rage, to give our offenders second, third, fourth, and even hundredth chances. But how do we live into this mind-boggling call? How do we even begin? Perhaps we can begin by affirming what forgiveness is not. First, forgiveness is not denial. Forgiveness isn't pretending that an offense doesn't matter or that a wound doesn't hurt. Forgiveness isn't acting as if things don't have to change. Forgiveness isn't allowing ourselves to be abused and mistreated or assuming that God has no interest in justice. Forgiveness isn't synonymous with healing or reconciliation. 
Healing has its own timetable, and sometimes reconciliation is not possible. In fact, sometimes our lives depend on us severing ties with our offenders, even if we've forgiven them. In other words, forgiveness is not cheap. Secondly, forgiveness is not a detour or a shortcut. Yes, Christianity insists on forgiveness, but it calls us first to mourn, to lament, to burn with zeal, and to hunger and thirst for justice. Forgiveness in the Christian tradition is not a palliative. It works hand-in-hand with the arduous work of repentance and transformation. In other words, there is nothing godly about responding to systemic evil with passive acceptance or unexamined complicity. Thirdly, forgiveness is not instantaneous, not if we're honest. Forgiveness is a process, a messy, non-linear, and often barbed process that might leave us feeling keeled and liberated one minute and bleeding out of every pore the next. In my experience, no one who says the words, I forgive you, gets a pass from this messy process, and no one who struggles extra hard to forgive for reasons of temperament, circumstance, or trauma should feel that they're less godly or spiritual than those who don't. Consider that before Joseph forgives his brothers, he wrestles with a strong desire to scare and shame them. In fact, he does scare and shame them. Forgiveness is something Joseph has to arrive at slowly and painfully. There is no cathartic altar call moment when the hurts of his past slip off his back and roll away. There is only life, lived one layered, complicated, and unsentimental moment at a time. Why? Because he, like all of us, is created for goodness for a just and nurturing world, for a family that will keep him safe. And just like Joseph, when we experience that good world being ripped away from us, it is appropriate, it is human and healthy to react with horror. One of the great gifts of Christianity is that it takes sin and sin's consequences seriously. Sin wounds, sin breaks, sin echoes down the ages. And so forgiveness is not an escalator, it's a spiral staircase. We circle circle and circle again, trying to create distance between the pain we've suffered and the new life we seek. Sometimes we can't tell if we've ascended at all. We keep seeing the same broken landscape below us. But ever so slowly our perspective changes. Ever so slowly the ground of our pain falls away. Ever so slowly we rise. Okay, if forgiveness isn't denial or a detour, if forgiveness isn't quick, then what is it? What is Jesus asking of us when he invites us to love, bless, pray, give, lend, do good, withhold judgment, extend mercy, and turn the other cheek? In her popular memoir, Traveling Mercies, Anne Lamott writes that withholding forgiveness is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. If Lamott is correct, then I think forgiveness is choosing to foreground love instead of resentment. If I am consumed with my own pain, if I have made injury my identity, If I insist on weaponizing my well-deserved anger in every interaction I have with people who hurt me, then I'm drinking poison, and the poison will kill me long before it does anything to my abusers. To choose forgiveness is to release myself from the tyranny of bitterness, to give up my frenzied longing to be understood and vindicated by anyone other than God, to refuse the seductive lie that revenge will make me feel better to cast my hunger for justice deep into God's heart, because justice belongs to God, and only God can secure it. I wonder if we're often squeamish about forgiveness because we misunderstand the nature of unconditional love. Foregrounding God's all-embracing love doesn't for one second require us to relativize evil. If it did, God's love would be cruel and weak, not compassionate and strong. 
But where we humans make love and judgment mutually exclusive, where we cry out for revenge, retribution, and punishment, God holds out for restorative justice, a kind of justice we can barely imagine, a kind of justice that has the power to heal both the oppressed and the oppressor. Secondly, I think forgiveness is a transformed way of seeing. When Joseph forgives his brothers, he reframes the horrible events of his life to include the redemptive artistry of God. God set me before you to preserve life. To be clear, this does not mean that God willed Joseph's brothers to abuse and abandon him. I don't believe that abuse is ever God's will. Rather, what Joseph is saying is that God is always and everywhere in the business of taking the worst things that happen to us and going to work on them for the purposes of multiplying wholeness and blessing. Because God is in the story, we can hope for the resurrection of all things. There will be another turn, another chapter, another path, another grace. As Jesus promises his listeners, the measure we give will be given right back to us, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Because God loves us, we don't have to forgive out of scarcity. We can forgive out of God's amazing abundance. At the end of her New York Times essay, Boylan, a trans woman, recounts going out to dinner one night with her mom and receiving cruel treatment from their transphobic waiter. Boylan walks out feeling hurt and sad, but she notices with surprise that her mom is unfazed. When she asks why, her mom says, Oh, Jenny, you know he didn't really mean it. Boylan almost retorts, as I would, of course he meant it. But then she realizes what her mom is saying. She wasn't really talking about the man before her. She was talking about a better version of him, a self he had not been able to become, but in whom she had not lost faith. He was not yet that man. But, she felt, in receiving the gift of kindness and of grace, maybe he still had a shot. The work of forgiveness is some of the hardest work we can do in this world. It is also some of the most important work we can do in this world. So, may we stop drinking the poison of incivility and bitterness. May we glimpse the better selves that reside within the people who do us harm. May we rise. And may we taste the full measure of the freedom that awaits us when we choose to forgive. For books this week, Dan reviews Rebecca Rag Sykes' book, Kindred, Neanderthal, Life, Love, Death, and Art. Ever since we discovered the fossilized remains of Neanderthals in 1856 in a German cave, they have been the victims of popular stereotypes. There's the caveman trope that imagines a bearded brute bent over, absent-mindedly hefting a wooden club and with decidedly apish pelt and feet. No wonder they went extinct. A more contemporary distortion exclaims that they were just like us, not so dumb after all. Rebecca Sykes's magisterial volume rejects these caricatures in her complex and fascinating history of what we have learned about Neanderthal since 1856. This requires a nuanced approach for a number of reasons. First, Neanderthals were both recognizable as a kind of human, but decidedly unconventional. They represent two diverging pathways to being human. Their brains were as big as ours. They interbred with Homo sapiens. Current data finds between 1.8 and 2.6% Neanderthal DNA in everyone, except those of sub-Saharan heritage. So they were both alike and different, but in exactly what ways is frustratingly unclear. There's also their enormous range in time, space, environments, and climates. Neanderthals flourished from about 400,000 years ago until their mysterious and hotly debated extinction 40,000 years ago. They lived from the Mediterranean to Siberia and south to Gibraltar. 
There were clearly many different ways to be a Neanderthal. Consequently, they bequeathed to us thousands of archaeological sites with perhaps millions of material artifacts. These include mainly stones and bones, but also so much more. In the last 30 years, a tsunami of new data and complicated interpretations. Scientific advances, especially the analysis of ancient DNA, where a teaspoon of cave dirt can produce entire genomes, have also revolutionized standard narratives about Neanderthals and raised further complicated questions. I would count myself among those who have the deeply human urge to connect with our ancient past. There's virtually nothing about the Neanderthals that Sykes does not consider. Their diet, tools, dwellings, travel, social organization, language, art, storytelling, self-adornment, and treatment of their dead, burials, and cannibalism. The, the Neanderthals, says Sykes, invite us to ask the grandest questions of all, like who we are, where we came from, and where we might be going. However strange or familiar, the Neanderthals are our kindred. For films this week, Dan reviews Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll. This music documentary chronicles two concerts in 1986 that were organized to celebrate the 60th birthday of the rock legend Chuck Berry. The film includes 19 songs by Berry and his ensemble that was headed by Keith Richards and included guest performers Eric Clapton, Linda Ronstadt, Etta James, Julian Lennon, and others. The two concerts were held at Barry's hometown Fox Theatre in St. Louis, where, as Barry recalls in the film, he was turned away as a little boy because of racist segregation. In addition to the concert footage, the film also includes Barry's own narration of his life and work, pre-concert rehearsals, and interviews with people who knew him, most notably Richards, his parents and siblings, other musicians like Roy Orbison, and a hilarious story told by a very young Bruce Springsteen, who recounts what it was like to be the local backup band that was Barry's standard practice. This is a feel-good movie that ignores the numerous controversies that surrounded this complicated artist. The title of the film comes from a line in Barry's song, School Days. I watched this film on Amazon Prime streaming. For more on this subject, see the one-hour documentary by PBS called Chuck Berry. And finally, for poetry, Carolyn Winfrey Gillette's poem, The Remnant of the Fury Will Not Go. The remnant of the fury will not go. The murmur of unstopping worry stays. I see the pain my friend will always know, and she, who never lived her childhood days, who grew up fast and broken and confused, once told me what it's like to be abused. She carries weight beyond her strength to bear, the guilt at being told it was her fault, the secrecy that led her to despair, confusion when a perpetrator caught, a man of God became the one relieved, while she who cried for help was disbelieved. What boundaries, broken once, can be made right? Will institutions change and now repent? Will shame that lived within, just out of sight, now linger on and stay and build a tent on wanted guest? And make itself at home, while leaders make their poor excuses known? And what of her and him and her and him and thousands more whose stories are untold? Internalizing violence as their sin, they too have struggled, watching life unfold. What is the remnant that is always near? O oh God, have mercy. Bring your healing here. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for February 20th, 2022. I'm Debbie Thomas.